It's the end of the week, so we're doing the nose. Although there's sort of a question about whether this is really a version of the nose, which is our weekly cultural roundtable where a panel gets together and kicks some cultural issues around. We decided we needed to focus on Hamilton. Hamilton is in Connecticut for three weeks of performances right now. Obviously, it is really in its own category in terms of popular culture of the 21st century. I don't even really know what I would compare it to. So we decided to get together some people who really know about Hamilton, who've seen Hamilton in some cases more than once, who want to analyze its music. We also have a first-timer, somebody seeing it for the first time. Uh, This is a show for people who don't like musicals, who don't like live theater, who don't like rap. It has all of those things in it. Somehow or other, everybody feels as though they need to be at it. So we'll talk about why after the news. Son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar The ten dollar Founded father without a father Got a lot farther by working a lot harder By being a lot smarter By being a self-starter by 14 They placed him in charge of a trading charter and every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up inside he was longing for something to be a part of the brother was ready to beg steal borrow or barter then a hurricane came Devastation reigned, our man saw his future drip, dripping down the train. Put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain, and he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain. Well, the word got around, they said this kid is insane, man. Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education, don't forget from whence you came, and the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done But just you wait, just you wait So let me tell you what we're doing today. It's our regular Friday show. Uh, Ordinarily, we take a bunch of topics uh, from culture and kick them around. We call it the nose. Uh, This week, because the show Hamilton has opened a run in Hartford, it's playing here for the benefit of Connecticut people uh, for three weeks. Uh, We decided to focus on that. Uh, Let me tell you who's here in the studio. Rich Holland is a principal and design director at CoLab and a commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Steve Metcalf is director of University of Hartford's President's College. Uh, Virginia Woolf, no, not that Virginia Woolf, is a local actress and audiobook, maybe it is, uh, uh, audiobook narrator and the founder of uh, Her Story Theater. All right, so I think we maybe have to begin by explaining uh, who everybody is here in addition to their titles in terms of their relationship to the show. Uh, and so I'm going to start over you over here with you, Virginia Woolf. Uh, tell us about you and the musical Hamilton. Well, the first time I saw Hamilton was kind of by mistake, a, a friend said, oh, we have to go into New York. We have to see Lin-Manuel's latest. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> so uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, 2015, we went in. It was a stormy Saturday. Driving was horrible. And I said to her, Deb, this had better be good because I'm spending Valentine's Day with you and not my husband. We went to the matinee and... So this is at the public, we should say. At the public, yeah. This is before Broadway. Before Broadway, actually before they even knew they were going to Broadway. 
And um, it opened with what we just heard, and my jaw dropped, and I didn't pick it up till the end of the show. <laughs> and since then, you've seen it two, two more times? Yeah. And as, uh, or yeah. three more times. Uh, I've seen it three more times. I saw it in Chicago. I have a friend who sits on the Jeff Committee out there, and there were tickets available, so I saw it there. My daughter and I, when it got announced it would be coming to Boston, we bought subscriptions uh, so we could get the tickets there, and then it came here to Hartford. All right. So... Um, she's by far, she's ahead of the rest of us in terms of live performance. <laughs> I don't know about We that. might be ahead of her in terms of geeking out on the soundtrack. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Uh, so, um, Mr. Bedcalf, you're the only one among us who's actually seen the show on Broadway, right? Oh, is that true? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Ah, well, that's a great honor. I must say my, my original connection to the show, uh, as uh, my connections to a lot of pop culture come about these days, was from my oldest daughter, Audie, who I think a day or two after the album came out called me and said, Dad, you, you have to listen to this because you're not going to believe it. And, you know, a sensitive dad that I am, I said, yeah, right, okay, and <laughs> and sort of forgot about it for a few days. But then I actually did buy the album and listen to it, and I didn't believe it, and and I was sort of instantly hooked in a way that really I'm not that often uh, these days and and I had I had had some acquaintance with uh, in the heights from the from the recording and I knew uh, uh, you know of Lynn Manuel's genius but truly it wasn't until we went to see the show which is now what about a year and a half ago and of course I was thinking to myself well this this thing can't possibly live up to the hype that it's getting and of course it not only does but exceeds it and um, uh, so that's my story I, I just like everybody else I'm, I'm just captivated by this thing who lives who dies who tells your story <laughs> right. all right uh, Rich how about you so I am naturally a skeptic of all things that reach phenomenal levels mm-hmm. and uh, so I've avoided this show like the plague mm-hmm. and uh, but I caught little bits and pieces of it little bits of the you know performances live and um uh, some charity performances and stuff like that and always sounded phenomenal. Uh, but I still maintain the sort of, this is too big for me. You know, this is, thing is going to be at the scale of Lemmy's and as entertaining as that is, I'm not ready for Lamborghinis and helicopters on a stage yet. And uh, so um, I ended up being one of 600 people so far who watched uh, this sneak a bootleg that someone made on YouTube where they clearly brought their iPhone in there. And you could tell whenever, like, uh, one of the ushers was walking by, they'd drop it under the seat. So so you only caught about a third of the show that way. And it looked really phenomenal, but I was missing the other two-thirds. So this was my first time seeing the whole thing through um, and blown away. Blown away, I'm trying to steal some tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say that, you know, for a long time, I'm somebody who really, really enjoys theater, as do a lot of the people in this room. I see a lot of theater. Uh, the, whole, the whole idea of this play that was so good that I couldn't get tickets to used to drive me out of my mind, and I wound up kind of resenting the musical. It was sort of also one of those musicals. It was the only, only musical or the only play a lot of people would go see for a year or two. And then they go, have you seen Hamilton? And I go, no, I saw like 27 other plays this year. Did you see any other plays except Hamilton? Uh, but when, when the soundtrack, when the cast album became available, I just, as was the case with Steve, I mean, I just couldn't stop listening to it. I mean, over and over again, it is such an incredible accomplishment. And so it was a thrill to see it finally uh, here in Hartford on Wednesday night when many of us were there. So I want to just talk about, this, is, this has had an odd ascendance 
Um, and Steve, I think I'm going to talk. Uh, start with you. I want to hear everybody on this. This play, whatever it is, whatever it winds up being, it's going to be in the pantheon, a, a very small group of five or six definitive American musicals. Uh, and, and it is a hit like no musical has been a hit uh, in modernity. It might be a bigger hit in some ways than, than anything ever has. It, it's now become a thing that is absolutely essential to people to go see. Um, and yet, you know, it's a, because tickets are limited and also because there's no hit song in the musical, which is really unusual for this. It, it's kind of hard to figure out how did this happen? How did we get to the point where this is an essential piece of popular culture? Um, so, yeah, you start with your theory. Okay. Well, uh, let me ask – try to answer your first question about the no-hit song thing first because mm. I think it's a, a relatively important I, – I, to my mind, the reason there's no big hit tune to this show is essentially because Lin-Manuel decided not to write one or even try to write one. And when you think about it, I mean that uh, sounds sort of counterintuitive about trying to put together a hit show. But I, I think if you think about the nature of this show and and the uh, way that we all readily uh, are are willing to talk about it as a work of art, I, I think really if there were to be one, you know, I dreamed a dream or some kind of cheesy uh, moment like that, we we would have a very different thought about this about this work. And I think that it was very wise of. Miranda not to attempt one. I mean, you know, it's certainly not to say that he couldn't have written a good one because because obviously he has the chops to do that. But but I think one of the things that distinguishes this show is that all of the songs, of which there are, what, 43 or something, uh, are written in the service of the, of the storyline in a way that is just absolutely uh, indispensable from the story itself. And there, there's no effort to create a tune that you know that Celine Dion can work into her cabaret act or whatever, and and I think I think that's an important point to yeah. make, and and I think it really does speak to the artistic integrity of the thing. I don't know, Ginny, do you have a theory? Well, I I, I do agree. I think um, each of the songs is so um, stands on its own as as a story in itself. Mm-hmm. That um, and each one moves the story forward and gives you some history. Uh, so as much as it might be beautiful. Standing on its own, you wouldn't be able to – it doesn't have the context unless you know the whole story. Well, I think what you guys are saying is significant too because one reason – when people say – and people say this to me a lot. I don't like musicals. I don't like them. I don't like musicals. And I think one of the things they don't like is the notion that people are talking for a while and then they start singing. And then they are going back to talking and then they start singing. That seems weird to them. So Rich – and this – that essentially doesn't happen for all no. the reasons that Virginia and Steve, uh, Steve are talking about right now because this, this show is essentially sunk through. Exactly. It's, it's operatic and, um, and it's also – so the music exists in themes, right? So, um, so there's a there's a theme that's planted at the beginning that just echoes in the middle and changes a little bit, and then changes a little bit at the at the close and the punch. And um, if you string those themes together, um, it almost feels like you're listening to this compilation of a massive hit album uh, um, because they're the hooks are powerful, they're gripping. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not taking away. Uh, I'm not throwing away my shot. You know that. Mm. You know that kind of um, crystal clear uh, tempo and cadence and and memorability, and yet uh, it doesn't last three minutes. 
So, um, so, so it's not, uh, so it's not going to get airplay. And um, so it's a, a tremendously memorable piece uh, as a whole. Um, without any one three minutes worth of memorability. Um, there's, a, there's a song that I particularly like a lot that you start getting into what's going to be a, a three-minute piece, and you get one minute into it, and they do a complete core shift, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and eventually follow, the echo, the, follow some of the themes and the echoes of that and round it out again, but it doesn't give you that thing that's familiar. Right, and if I could quickly follow up on that for one second, I think you don't, uh, there are a number of things that you don't quite appreciate about this show from just listening to the album. And one of them is that although, as we, as I think we all seem to agree, there aren't any standalone, you know, hit tunes, it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't some show-stopping numbers. In <laughs> fact, there are quite a few of them, um, some of which you might not have predicted from listening to the album but the show does stop uh, a number of times. And in fact, I don't think I've ever seen a show where the music director had such an important task of, of restarting the show long before the applause even started to die down, much less stop, uh, or else it would be a four-hour show. Yeah. But, but I mean, it really was a revelation to see uh, how some of those tunes, which are so specific to the story, were nevertheless you know, brought the house down. And, and it, I wonder if that varies, too. From You've seen b- multiple performances. Yes. D- does it vary which, which songs are the showstoppers or are the, the, get the audience? I, I, think, I think that um, the way they, they've cast each of the companies that I've seen, they know which ones are. Mm, yeah. yeah, I think it's <laughs> universal. One other piece to answer your question, Colin, is, um, is this idea of having these uh, little quick sound bites that, that are uh, resonant I think it's one of the the main successes of the show, and it uh, it adapts to uh, to how a musical and how an idea is promoted right now. It gives you these perfect little micro sound bites uh, that are shareable, that are clippable, um, and uh, and in that way, it's very uh, aware of what it needs to do to promote itself. Um, I, I want to also just quickly say that one of the so what are my theories about this? I think a lot of things had to come together to produce this phenomenon of a musical which people it's also the highest selling cast album in the history of cast albums. It's it's every it has every possible superlative. I do think that one of the things that's important about this is that it's um, the way that it uses rap and the idioms of hip hop uh, is an invitation to a group of people who may have thought that maybe musicals didn't have much to offer them. You know, and I think for some of the suburban audience going to this uh, show, they're going, oh, I didn't really think I liked rap, but I really like this. This is really good, the way it kind of advances the action. You know, and then there's a whole other generation of people who are going, oh, well, that was a – I mean, if you like hip-hop and you see – uh, you hear a song called Ten Dual Commandments, you know that that's based, uh, that's sort of a nod to, to to Biggie and Ten Crack Commandments. There's like a lot of stuff like that where if you're a hip-hop fan, you have a completely different relationship with this. But, you know, I mean, Ginny, in terms of audience building and stuff like that, it seems to me this is one of the, one of the things that they've done a remarkable job with is say, hey, no, there's a lot, a lot. I just, oh, I did a hey, which is also a convention <laughs> from the show. Hey, hey there, but there's, here's, there's something for you here. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's true. I'm not a, a rap hip-hop I know nothing about it, and I won't say I hate it, but I just don't experience it at all. To me, it's the storytelling. It is the perfect vehicle for the storytelling, which opens my appreciation to the fact that probably a lot of rap and hip-hop out there is. 
But I didn't ever know that. It was just music that didn't apply to me. Um, so I think that, yeah, it brings in a generation of kids. And, I mean, even singing along, my daughter, she's got the whole cadence. She can sing the whole thing straight through. Mm-hmm. And, and my mouth doesn't work that fast. <laughs> well, the Lafayette parts are pretty hard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and isn't it uh, worth noting, I think, here that uh, it, at least in everything that I've read over the last, you know, several years now about this thing uh, seems to confirm that the the hip-hop community and the rap community, which is which I think guards its own integrity pretty carefully, mm-hmm. uh, seems to acknowledge that Lynn is the real thing, yeah. you know, yeah. that he's not yeah. just this Broadway guy who thought it would be cool to try to graft that onto a show. I mean, that, that they recognize that this this guy is one of them, and and I think that uh, was important in the in the whole sort of cultural uh, acceptance piece yeah. of this work. Mm-hmm. It's but but I'm gonna uh, to add to that as as important as I think that that is his acceptance in his not that he wasn't rejected by the culture, right? Um, it's also pretty much hip hop light, right? It's crossover hip hop, and uh, and in a, and in a lot of ways, it's you know it's like. Lionel Richie singing "Stuck on You," you know, it's 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 meant to be accessible to a broad range of people, um, and uh, the language is uh, is familiar to everybody. Uh, they're they're not using terminology that's going to be uh, that's going to leave a lot of folks scratching their heads, um, and uh, and there's a kind of clarity to the narrative uh, that you could follow in a way that um, that rap and hip-hop has has got a lot of uh, insider uh, insider information about it. But that, there's, there's a fair amount there, too. I mean, you know, once again, when he spells out his name, that's kind of a biggie nod. There's uh, the moment there's a, in the ballad Helpless, there's a moment where it, when Lin-Manuel Miranda plays this role, he does this thing where he drops his voice and goes, as long as I'm alive, well, I say, you know, you never feel. And that's actually a very deliberate Ja Rule quote. Mm-hmm. It's from uh, the, one of the duets uh, that Ja Rule does. You know, even like little things like you spit while I sit, we'll see where you land or whatever that line is. You know, there, there's there's a lot there that I think is a very much a cue to he's yes. a he's a fan and, and he's a fan who now, as Steve says, is also very now acknowledged as a very legitimate practitioner of it. Yeah. I don't know if I would go with the the hip hop light. I mean, it's not Nas. I, I get yeah. that, but you know, uh, but it seems like uh, something that is legitimately hip hop anyway, and not you know absolutely. I think it's legitimately hip hop, but uh, but I don't think it's the hip hop that people who say I don't like hip hop are you know are, are not liking. You, you yeah. now picked up my character. <laughs> I did, I did, and it's particularly suburban. All right, so um, what we'll do here is we're going to take a little break here just to do a, a little bit of a pledge drive. It's the last day of our pledge drive. When we come back, we're going to get a little bit deeper into the music uh, of this show uh, and a little bit more about the appeal of it. I should say that some of what you're about to hear it's something that we recorded a few days ago because I think you should hear during pledge break from the people who make the show. So all the people who make our show are, are on this. Now, we didn't know what kind of day Friday was going to be. We didn't even know we were going to do a show about Hamilton. So we may be describing our mission a little bit differently than uh, than what you're hearing on the show. But, but we do ask you, it's the last day of the pledge drive. Last day, please consider supporting this show in particular.
You're listening to the news, but this isn't the news. This is just a little break in the show that we are doing. You know it's Pledge Week. We're asking you to support the station by calling 1-800-584-2788. Make a pledge that way or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. When you do that, it really helps the programming that you hear. So this is a show that we kind of invented many, many years ago now. And once again, I think it was a case where I just came in stomping and red-faced and saying, I don't want to do the old kind of show anymore. So, But I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe what the news actually is. So let's ask the guy who produces it every week now, Jonathan McNichol. It is the bane of my existence. No, I don't mean that. <laughs> the thing about the nose, the thing that's, that's weird, and I think we talk about this sometimes about the nose, is we've, we've kind of flipped the public radio model on its head. We book the guests on the nose in advance, these wonderful, smart, funny, articulate people who are not necessarily experts in any of the things that we're going to talk about because we don't know what any of the things we're going to talk about are when we book them. So we've got these three people in the room, and the week goes by, and Jessica Simpson does some ridiculous thing, and they're stuck talking about it on the radio. And that's the thing, is, is, is they're, they're smart enough and quick enough and funny enough to make radio out of it. And I think she's doing pretty well as Secretary of Transportation, too. So, um, yes. you know, I think people kind of under, underrated her. So, yeah, one of the things that comes uh, – people who aren't used to talking on the radio come in here and they, they appear on the nose. And then – so it's sort of like this fun break where a lot of – Scott Breedy's in here. Uh, Carlos Mejia is in here. Golden Globe-nominated filmmaker Carlos Mejia. Uh, Betsy Kaplan's Thank in you. here. And Carlos is – he's just starting to talk on the radio for the first time. And what are you doing? You're complaining about how bad the microphone I, smells? So I'm, I'm normally never <laughs> – Behind a microphone, this mic smells pretty bad. It smells like like coffee breath. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a thing for. Maybe you guys just gave me this mic. <laughs> no, they all smell bad. Oh, but you know what that bad. is? That's humanity. That's, that's what that, yes. that mic smells like. Humanity. A, a lot of. Uh, <laughs> oh, Colin. Hey, speaking of yeah. smells, um, I get when I'm out and about, people ask me why is this called the nose. All right, so ah, that's a good question. there isn't a really easy answer to redacted, that question. Redacted. We should bleep well, this whole part. Should we not? Should we not explain it at all? Is there an, even an answer? Wait, well, just let him talk. We'll find out. No, no, let them no, talk. No. <laughs> he always, he talks too much. Remember, that's what the survey that's what said. The survey <laughs> so some people said that they thought it was the nose, as in K N O W S, as opposed to the nose N O S E. So people may have just misunderstood the entire time. So now you can speak. Well, now another thing that happened when we surveyed our listeners. Uh, our listeners also thought that these are my friends, that I just have my friends in and we talk. I want to tell you, all the panelists hate my guts, <laughs> all right? They're not friends. They do it for Betsy. They do it for right. pants. Yeah, but they get up and leave without saying a word when the show is over. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we go out for coffee or anything like that. We pay them when they leave. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think it was sort of an opportunity to do something spontaneous, you know, and, and to uh, maybe use people a slightly different way and make it about sort of the end of the week and talking around the – the water cooler or the coffee machine or but something this, this like that. This doesn't explain the name of it, though. Oh, the name. Oh, that, that was the question, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But don't. I don't think we should. I think we should make Scott Breedy explain what the way I just said. Oh, my God. <laughs> Scott's, Scott's kind of new here, so like we make him do all you're kinds of things like spot. that. No. I have a theory when you're done. Or, well, I have no theory. All right. So. Well, take a guess I, anyways. And while he's guessing, let me give out the you number. You sniff oh, yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. You sniff <laughs> out what people are talking That's about. That's what I was going to say. That's mm. my theory. Or, or people pick their favorite things that they want to oh. talk about. Oh. 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 Like All right. So 1-800-584-2788, especially if you enjoy wit of that kind. Oh, 1-800-584-2788. People talking, complaining about stinky microphones. Uh, and also go online. You can make a donation at WNPR.org. That's WNPR.org. I feel like maybe I shouldn't explain it. No, now. I, I think that's like you know, that's I the power. That's the power of pants. Do you do everything pants says? Yeah. yeah. 
Pants, by the way, is Jonathan McNichol. We should explain that, too. Oh, yeah. Why oh, do people good. call you Let's Pants? We have somebody named Pants who produces the nose. Um, <laughs> why do people call you Pants? <laughs> this is sort of why we don't pull the curtain back that often. Because like, when you, what Man, you see doesn't really make any sense. He's having a child who he's going to name Shorts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That is true. There's going to be a, a new Pants, Not a new Jonathan McNichol. Pants, why do they call you the Pants? We have, we have 30 seconds. Uh, there's no answer to this question either wow. because right. it's my Twitter handle, McNichol Pants, because Pants are funny. I don't know. It's Colin's fault. I don't you really also have a domain by that name. Yeah. This no. is big oh, stuff. So no, an online domain. No, yeah. There's a lot of mystery. <laughs> uh, maybe that's it. That's there's incorrect, a mystery Wrap it up, Wolfie. Wrap it up, Wolfie. All right, all right. Well, I'll also, if you go to WNPR.org slash donate, you can see all the cool stuff you can get, like my voice on your voicemail, or I'll do a motivational wake-up message and telling you how awesome you are and what a great day you're going to have. But either way, please give us a call at 1-800-584-2788 and support this awesome show. It's a one of a kind. Thank you so much. Can we get back to politics? Please. Yo. Every action has its equal opposite reaction. John Adams hatched the bed. I love the guy, but he's in traction. Poor Alexander Hamilton. He is missing in action. So now I'm facing Aaron Burr with his own faction. He's very attractive in the North. New Yorkers like his chances. He's not very forthcoming on any particular stances. Ask him a question that glances off. He obfuscates. He dances. And they say I'm a Francophile. At least they know I know where France is. Thomas, that's the problem. All right, we're back. Uh, we are talking about the musical Hamilton. What else is there to talk about, uh, at least in Hartford these days? Rich Holland is principal and design director at CoLab and a commissioner uh, on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Steve Metcalf is our resident musicologist and director of the University of Hartford's President's College. Uh, Virginia Woolf is a local actress and audiobook narrator and the founder of Her Story Theater. Am I saying that right? Her Story? You like, are, I, yes. I'm, I'm doing my best. You're doing great. I can only do my best. <laughs> so before we get into a little bit of like maybe geeking out on the music, uh, one question that I asked all of you on as we were emailing back and forth about this is, you know, I, I, one experience that I have about listening to the cast album is if I'm listening to the cast album, I don't want to listen to anything else. Um, there's nothing else that really fits in with it. And if I'm not listening to the cast album and listening to a lot of other stuff, I have to make a very specific transition to this set of music, this sensibility, the spell that is cast by this material. And I find myself wondering – for, partly for that reason, Virginia, whether the popularity of this is transferable. For example, the Bushnell, where it's playing right now, has experienced this huge spike uh, in their Broadway sub- series subscriptions, partly because that's one of the ways that you could get tickets is <laughs> do a couple of years of that. There's some interesting stuff coming in, but it's not Hamilton. I just sort of wonder, you know, is this like a one-off in terms of the kind of appeal that it has, or does it bring people back maybe or introduce people to a form they, they just never had a particular uh, interest in or never felt drawn toward? I would like to think that as people come to see Hamilton, they say, oh, this the Bushnell's great, musical theater's great, it's wonderful, I'm going to become a subscriber. I don't really think that's, I think it is a phenomenon. I think um, as much as I love every aspect of the show, plenty of people, oh, I don't like rap, but you have to see Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, this, that, um, I don't like musicals, but I had to see Hamilton. You know, I, I don't know how many opportunities it's going to open aside from, and I say, up-and-coming talent and writers and all of that, seeing the doors that have been blown wide apart creatively and how you can take such a huge chance as he did and 
become a phenomenon. And right. I think that's amazing. I mean, the elevator pitch for this is crazy, right? I'm going to yeah. do a musical about Alexander Hamilton. It's going to explain some of the foundation of the central banking system, and it's going to be hip hop. I mean, I, I, you know, how you even got that produced? I don't know. What, what do you think, Metcalf? Well, it sort of reminds me of the question that people asked when when the three tenors was a big phenomenon, you know, and like the, the question then, of course, was would the three tenors produce a whole new generation of uh, you know audience for opera? Um, and I think the answer uh, has come back, and the answer is no, it didn't, uh, because that was a kind of one of a kind, one off thing. I don't. I, I guess I feel like the the interesting question about Hamilton is it is it going to pave the way for generally a much wider definition of what a Broadway musical can be and what kinds of people you know can plausibly attempt a Broadway musical and what kind of topics you know might be suitable. I mean, I mean, after, as you say, I mean, a, a musical about the formation of uh, you know the central banking system. Uh, would seem to suggest that almost anything is in play now as a as a subject. And I think if that's the result, as it may well be, and I think maybe we're even already seeing that a little bit with like the band's visit and some other shows, that will be a, a really historic kind of turning point. And I, th- I think there's maybe reason to think that will happen. What do you think? So I think that if they pitch this as um, as a uh, rap exploration of the creation of the of the national banking system, they did a really lousy job pitching this movie, <laughs> pitching this play. Right? Um, no, that was uh, me making it up. <laughs> <a couple times. laughs> All right. Um, so I think that what's happening is that the one-off is becoming its own genre. Um, that we're living in a in a culture where we're rapid prototyping things and there's a whole bunch of ability to be exposed uh, at, a, at an incredibly fast rate uh, to all of what's going on globally, uh, that it is inevitable that, um, that these wonderful accidents of things slamming together to create something new, that peanut butter and chocolate thing, whatever that commercial was, um, that, uh, that we're going to continue to perpetuate these one-offs that can't be replicated mm-hmm. other than to create more room for acceptance uh, for the stuff that we haven't seen before actually being uh, feasible and sustainable. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the music. Before We're, we're going to plunge uh, deeply uh, into one of them. But I think before we do that, first of all, I've been instructed uh, to by people who do not understand my relationship with Steve Metcalf and therefore think I can make him do things to make <laughs> him stop clicking his pen. But yeah, they want you to stop clicking your pen. They're upset about that. Uh, so, um, but actually, before we go deep into um, uh, one song with Metcalf, let's hear um, uh, Rich's uh, favorite song. Uh, this is, uh, so Wolfie, you'll, you'll find this clip as Wait For It, I think. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. I'm keeping her bed warm while her husband is away. He's on the British side in Georgia. He's trying to keep the colonies in line. Well, he can keep all of Georgia. Theodosia, she's mine. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep loving anyway. We laugh and we cry. So this is one of the things you don't get when you go to see the Bushnell. You don't get Leslie Odom singing this particular song. Although the guy who plays Burr, I think, is very riveting in his own oh, way. Yeah. Has his own understanding of who Burr is. But one thing that you, one point that you argued as we were emailing around is it, there really are two very important stories being told on parallel tracks here. 
Yeah, so it's the the Aaron Burr story and uh, the Aham, uh, Alexander Hamilton story. Um, and throughout this uh, throughout this production, we're, uh, we're diminishing uh, Burr, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, he self-deprecates a lot. You know, he, uh, he insists that... Uh, that the universe needs to be paced and considered and, and restrained, and um, and uh, in a in a sh- in a show that's full of of male bravado, uh, as this one is, you know, where uh, where you know where uh, before introducing themselves, you know, you have to leap off a table or something, you know, um, uh, that uh, that Burr was this constant like the grown up in the room in a lot of ways, and. Um, and to finally get to this one piece where you share where he's coming from and, and you know, and what honor of heritage and legacy really looks like um, was phenomenal. And to see a black person singing it for me, you know, I forgot that it was Aaron Burr. I, thought, I saw someone singing to, you know, all of black history and that, and that sense of, of honor of our mothers and fathers. And, um, but the, the central uh uh, the theme in this, I can't even call it a chorus. So the theme mm-hmm. in this is uh, it's this idea that either love or death is uh, is the 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 sort of uh, great equalizers of the sinners and the saints is a thing is an idea that gets transferred back and forth throughout this play, looking to be resolved, looking to see if you could ever pin down in this play who the sinner is and who the saint is, and and those roles keep getting traded back and forth to the point that to me at the end of it it doesn't matter any longer. You know that his core premise was actually pretty accurate. That it's that it's sort of immaterial. It's love and it's death and it's moving on. That's a great analysis. So before we get to Metcalf's thing, Virginia, I, I noticed um, at the Bushnell, and I don't know what it's like in, in other places. And and it's so much of this is also there's just no getting away from the fact that most of the story of this musical have, has unfolded in 2016, 2017, 2018. Yeah. And and so there's a, a song in the show uh, where George Washington t- sings about one last time and he wants his farewell address written by Alexander they want to do it to, he wants them to do it together he talks about restraint and and the notion of handing over power and there's just sort of a, a dignity again this is sung by a black man mm-hmm. um, and at least at the Bushnell on Wednesday night, that was the thing that I thought stopped the show almost more than anything else. Uh, it's a big number, I think, yes. particularly at this moment. Yes. And it's a, um, a poignant number as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the leader of the country is deciding to step down. You, we could, you know, draw parallels to all sorts of things for forever and ever with current politics. But um, and I think everybody's so invested in him and the fact that George Washington, we're, we're seeing George Washington in person on that on that stage. Um, you, yeah, you don't think what color he is. It doesn't matter. It's, a, you know, our first president. And he's making decisions for the best for this country. And the only way he can do it is step down so that others can come, which I think is a riot. Then King George is like, I didn't even know you could do that. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about, so Mika, if you had a particular song you wanted us to spend a little bit of time with, and although our time is pressed, we're going to do our, the best that we can. This is a song called uh, The Room Where It Happens. Do you want us to play the first chorus first and then you... you yeah, this, let's, let's have that first clip and then, and then uh, I can pontificate for a moment. All right. You're going to play Ode 2, uh, Wolfie. Hamilton. I'm sorry, Burr, I gotta go. But decisions are happening over dinner. To Virginia. 
opinions and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically opposed foes. They emerge with a compromise, having opened doors that were previously closed. Bros. The immigrant emerges with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. And here's the piece de resistance. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played. All right, go. So, uh, <clears throat> very quickly, I mean, it's just such a remarkable song in so many ways. But, um, you know, you have, for example, you have, uh, on the one hand, the rise of Hamilton himself as a negotiator and as a power broker in the Young Republic. Secondly, you have in this song, amazingly enough, a quick explainer of the Compromise of 1790, which is not a topic that has been dealt with widely in popular music. Uh, but a very, a very clever and and sort of concise summary of that event, and, and then most of all, you have as a, I would argue, as a sort of a sequel to "Wait for It," the song that Rich just talked about. You have Burr almost kind of uh, uh, unraveling before our eyes his his hatred of Hamilton and his abiding, growing uh, envy and and uh, sort of uh, just just drivenness to be part of the corridors of power uh, is revealed to us uh, in a, a sort of rising crescendo of uh, intensity, which, which, among other things, leads him from saying, I want to be in the room where it happens, to, at the very end of the song, I got to be in the room where it happens. And you almost, you almost feel Burr's fateful... Um, rendezvous with Hamilton taking shape at this very minute, which, of course, does, in fact, ultimately result in the duel and Hamilton's death. But anyway, all of this is taking taking place in a five-minute song, a five-minute song, incidentally, that's marked Hip-Hop Dixieland. <laughs> so, uh, this well, we should say something. So, uh, Virginia, there's a banjo that people could hear in that yes. little bit of the chorus. <laughs> and there's a name we haven't mentioned so far that I, maybe is the reason for the banjo. You want to tell us about that? It was that Alex Lacamoire, the uh, musician. He said, basically, he wants to be known as the man that put the banjo into Hamilton on Broadway. <laughs> and, and explain right. who he is? He is the... Uh, orchestrator. The orchestrator, the orchestrator yeah. yes. Yeah. Music director. And actually, Miranda has said, uh, of all the great... Uh, ideas that Lack had in this show, that's the greatest, the, putting the banjo in that song. Um, so let's hear just a little bit more from that song. We're going to have to go to a break pretty soon, and we may not be able to dive in as deep. But So, uh, Wolfie, just uh, go to the to the, the next one. Meanwhile, Madison is grappling with the fact that not every issue can be settled by committee. Meanwhile, Congress is fighting over where to put the capital. <laughs> It isn't pretty. Then Jefferson approaches with the dinner and invite, and Madison responds with Virginian insight. Maybe we can solve one problem with another and win the victory for the Southerners. In other words, oh, oh. a quid pro quo. I suppose. Wouldn't you like to work a little closer to home? Actually, I would. Well, I propose the Potomac. And you'll provide him his vote. Well, we'll see how it goes. Let's go. No. Okay, so that's you're hearing uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Burr conspire among themselves. You want to like riff on that for a second? Well, again, it, it, so it, that that just speaks to the, the the kind of remarkableness of the fact that you have three streams going on in this one five minute song. Because just a second later, Burr comes back in again in an almost a kind of soliloquy, and this time with the maximum intensity, reflecting on the fact that he wasn't in the room where it happened, and and how he's determined to not. 
you know, be pushed around by his by his rival and tormentor uh, Hamilton in the way. And and in fact, later on in the song, as you I'm sure remember, Rich, there's even a little taunting quote mm-hmm. of "Wait for it, wait for it." And and Hamilton is saying, "You don't get anything in life if you wait for it." And yeah. and he's throwing that up in Burr's face, which is. Uh, you, you know, has predictable uh, results. So it, it's just an ingenious song, and it does uh, quite properly bring the house down. Well, let's um, let's go to a break right now, so we'll have time to recommend some stuff. But apropos of that, Wolfie, maybe you can just play us out with uh, with clip four there. Alexander Hamilton. What did they say to you to get you to sell New York City down the river? Alexander Hamilton. Did Washington know about the dinner? Was the presidential pressure to deliver? doesn't matter where you put the U.S. Capitol. Because we'll have the banks. We're in the same spot. You got more than you gave. And I wanted what I got. When you got skin in the game, you stay in the game. But you don't get a win unless you play in the game. Oh, you get love for it. You get hate for it. You get nothing if you wait for it, wait for it, wait. This is the part of the show where we do the credits for all the people who don't get enough credit for the credit they gave us. This episode was produced by Theodosia McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is one of 32,000 fish in New York Harbor. The part of Bill Curry was played by George Washington. On Monday, the scramble is talking about women and far-right nationalist movements, and maybe also about 100 Christmas songs ranked. And now... Back to Colin. All right. It's time uh, to do some uh, recommendations, endorsements, and things like that. Before we do that, I would uh, take note of the fact that Nancy Wilson, the great uh, jazz chanteuse, passed uh, at the age of 81, uh, and uh, she is remarkable. And so if you want to do something else this weekend, you can take out your Spotify or whatever it is you're using and uh, make yourself a little Nancy Wilson uh, playlist. But uh, Rich, does, Rich is the most uh, experienced uh, endorser here. Why don't you get us started? Sure. Um, the uh, Commission on Cultural Affairs uh, for the city of Hartford uh, about a month ago or so, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, announced uh, the city's first poet laureate, and it's uh, Frederick Douglass Knowles III. And uh, my endorsement today, as Frederick is starting to make the tours of the city and talk in schools and talk in, in, in read in every uh, venue possible, is to, uh, to plug his book, uh, which is Black Rose City. It's the latest one that, that I that I stumbled on, and it's actually really brilliant. Um, it's uh, snapshots of urbanism and relationships and uh, the isolation that, that exists uh, in those spaces and really worth the read. I think it's available on Amazon. Very cool. Mr. Metcalf, what do you have for us? Well, if this isn't too shameless, the, the great uh, President's College program at the University of Hartford um, uh, will announce online, that's hartford.edu slash President's College, on Tuesday morning, its roster of courses and lectures for the spring semester. And anyone can sign up, and we hope you will. We have a, we have a really, truly, I would say, distinguished uh, lineup of events. And uh, so please visit the website and sign up for three or five courses. All right. Uh, Virginia Wolf, what do you have for us? I'd like to chat about a, an art center in Southington. It's called the Arts at Angeloria's. This is a fabulous place. The woman who runs it, she has a rambling Victorian house that when they cut some arts funding where she teaches, she turned it into an art center. The theater is her two-car garage. She's got this all this land. She's built a huge performance barn, and she is single-handedly running amazing um, programs and camps for kids and just arts all over the place. So uh, 
nothing in particular, but the arts at angelorias.com. See what's coming up. It's a charming place to visit or to create. All right. I, I want to do a few things that kind of fit in a little bit with uh, our Hamilton theme here today. So first of all, um, among the musicals that I've seen in the last, probably the other musical I've seen in the last four or five years that completely blew my mind and has really stayed with me is a musical called Town. I saw it at New York Theater Workshop. It's by the, a sort of a um, kind of alt-folk composer, Aeneas Mitchell. Uh, the staging of it was mind-blowing. It is the story of Orpheus, Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's sort of slammed up against kind of a, I don't know, Depression-era hobo trains kind of thing uh, that's happening. Truly remarkable. And the reason I'm mentioning it is it's coming to uh, to Broadway. Those of us who saw it at New York Theater Workshop kept going, where is it? It's got to be. It's got to go to Broadway. So it's go, it's going to go to the, into the theater that Bruce Springsteen is leaving uh, sometime around April. It really, you absolutely have to do this. And then another thing. thing if you want to maybe sort of find the next big thing, uh, one thing that I've, I think, recommend, recommended in the past and participated in the past myself, Goodspeed Musicals does a thing in January where they, it's, uh, I think, sort of the week, right around January 17th, 18th uh, this winter, where for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they have people coming in who are workshopping musicals. Quite frequently, the musicals are done in a concert form uh, by, often with people from uh, Hart's tremendous musical theater program. So if you want to sort of maybe, you know, buy low and sell high, uh, you might go and see that. Is there anything else that I desperately have to mention? Uh, Oh, just very quickly. So um, uh, on Monday, we may, as Wolfie was alluding to, talk about our our friend Alexandra Petra, a very funny writer for The Washington Post, ranked 100 different Christmas songs in order with uh, Little Drummer Boy in Hell uh, and Good King Wences uh, at the top in heaven. Uh, We may be talking about that. Um, If you have time over the weekend, we're not going to play it right now, but there's a song that nobody knows called The Man with the Bag uh, that I was, did K-Star do it originally? I don't know. There's a great sort of big band kind of Christmas song that didn't make her list because nobody knows about it. It's a great song. Look it up. The Man with the Bag. All right. So we're going to play out with some music here and then we're going to ask you once again to support the show. The staff of the show is going to tell you why. It's the last day of fundraising and the staff of the show is going to tell you why you should support this show. So what I decided to do was on the, on the very last um, day of fundraising, I think it's important once again, the, the voices of the people who put this show together uh, are the voices that, that I want you to hear. They're going to explain what it is that we specifically do. And, and if you donate now, I mean, we do get a little bit more credit for it. Uh, and, uh, and I'm assuming that if you're listening right now, the kind of programming we do actually does mean something to you. So you're going to hear a lot of the different producers. I don't know if, we, if I managed to name them all or explain who they are, but a lot of the people who work on the show uh, are going to be explaining to you why you should give. Centuries from now, they have played my freestyle And say this is the brilliance of a black American child Endowed by the streets of the shy proud Known to move in silence, but could be loud The noise of big girls and boys Building to destroy the perception of urban aggression My life is up aggression, of course For the oppressors of chorus My story is the glory of the Lord So 
So this is me again. I'm here in the Pledge Drive studio with a Golden Globe award-winning, or no, nominee, actually, Carlos nominee, Mejia, nominee. the filmmaker. Scott Brady, the newest producer here at the station. Uh, Jonathan McPants, uh, who produces The Nose, that you're listening to. Senior producer and troublemaker, Betsy Kaplan. And, of course, Wolfie's there uh, running the board right now. So, Scott, it's the last day of the Pledge Drive. This is our last chance to talk to them about the Colin McEnroe show. Say something incredibly inspirational. When I came here... The idea of coming up with an entire show about color or about toothbrushes just blew my mind. And I still don't understand it, but I'm starting to do it. But um, no, I'm sort of like beginning to look at the rundowns and seeing how these things come together. And it's a real lot of work that goes into producing a show about toothbrushes. I mean, Betsy was like practically pulling your hair out coming up with topics. <laughs> <laughs> and we brought dogs in. We brought Tucker Ives' dog in to, <laughs> to do the, the show. Yeah. And right. it was uh, it was awesome. So the number to call <laughs> – can I call a number? Should I say yeah, the number? Do you want to okay. call the number? Yeah. No. <laughs> the number to call is 1-800-584-2788. It'd be cool, if we, right? could, yes, be cool if we it. called it right now and we just like put them on the line. Okay. Sort of an inception moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Should I say you should also go to? You can also go to wnpr.org. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Can I do they that? They like to say org, but I say org too yeah. because. But I then at the end you have to say. And thanks. People love that. Right. I don't no. know what that is. Well, no, but it, it is a good thing. I mean, because uh, people are going to do this, and it's important to thank them. I mean, the whole thing doesn't work unless we can get people to put up with our nonsense, mm. which means they have to care about a show that we're doing, like The Nose, or a show about brushing teeth, or toothbrushes, or towels. Towels, towels yeah. And, and by the way, this whole thing of her pulling out her hair, that's just her process. <laughs> <laughs> After I'm done brushing my teeth. I pull out my hair. So, but we do thank you all very much for supporting us this week. And when you do it during our little time here, our little time together, it, it does kind of counts on the ledger in our favor too. So if you, if you love the show, you love the nose, you love all the people you met through the nose, uh, make that phone call. Wolfie's going to give you the number, the website, and the inspiration. All right. Do so it. I think we should all say it together because okay, my theory like is that if you can say the number along with us, then you should probably be a member because that means you listen not only to the station in general, but you listen through the fun drive, which really says a lot about you. So let's all do it. 1-800-584-2788. That was beautiful. Oh, and man. you can go to w- that's right, and you go to WNPR.org. You can see lots of thank you items. So you can like go to the grocery store and you'll have your public radio tote bag and you'll lock eyes with someone down the, the produce aisle who also has a tote bag and a fresh air hat and you can – Make eyes at each other and, and meet someone who clearly has the same wonderful taste in <laughs> Try not to radio. shoplift if you're actually using one of our <laughs> Please, bags. Don't shoplift with our tote bags. Uh, and thank you in advance. That's 1-800-584-2788.